You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. Welcome to another episode of Diversity Straight Up. Want to hear about a religious institution that has gone from 1,200 students to over 10,000 students in just a few short years? You need to tune in now to listen to this episode. Have you ever heard of a position called mission integration, a position that's focused on ensuring all departments are aligned with the organization and be held accountable? You want to tune into this episode. Tune in, as we always say on Diversity Straight Up. Keeping it real. For more than six decades, ACT has advanced its mission of helping people achieve education and workplace success. We exist to fight for fairness in education and create a world where everyone can discover and fulfill their potential. Education has power, a power that can change lives forever. It creates opportunities that lift up individuals and their families, and it sparks societal change that echoes through generations to come. From our grassroots, we have fought the good fight for equity in education, and we remain devoted to helping anyone who struggles to access that power. We are all in to create a world that values and encourages each individual's abilities and potential in a society that is fairer and more equitable. What's next for you? A new car? A new house? A vacation? At Alliant Energy, we're planning what's next for your energy by adding more renewable energy sources, embracing new technology, building stronger communities, and providing you with more options. We're not just powering homes and businesses. We're powering what's next for you. Learn more at AlliantEnergy.com slash powering what's next. The phrase people you can bank on, it kind of embodies our legacy. What I think that means is we care about our clients, we care about our community, and we care for each other. Having been in business for over 20 years and uh, explored all possibilities of financing and you know banking relationships, I have found that the people at Cedar Rapids Bank & Trust are people that you can really bank on. Happy New Year and welcome to an exciting episode of the Quarter Media Group's Diversity Straight Up 2023 sponsored by ACT, Alliant Energy, Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. I am your host, Sadika Bakta, president of Nikea Diversity Consulting. And I am your host, Anthony Arrington, managing partner of Top Rank. And we are looking forward to a great conversation today. We've got a great university leader, and I can't wait to just chop it up. So, uh, Sarika, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, our great guest today? Yes, thank you, Anthony. Uh, we have Maurice Nelson, who is joining us as our guest executive today. He is a proud native of Savannah, Georgia. He identifies as Black and Mexican, and his ethnicities and other identities have developed and continue to cultivate his purpose and passion for advocacy of underrepresented people. He earned a Bachelor of Business Administration and Management from Savannah State University, a Master of Education in Higher Education Administration from Georgia Southern, and he is pursuing a Doctor of Education in Higher Education Leadership. Most recently, Marie served as the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Yale University in the School of Nursing. He now resides in New Haven, Connecticut, and is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Sacred Heart University. Maurice has held many professional roles and made significant contributions to inclusive excellence 
at the institutional and system-wide levels, far, far, far too many to read here today. Advocacy for underrepresented and minoritized people continue to lead as a driving force behind his personal and professional endeavors. Welcome, welcome to the show, Maurice, on Diversity Straight Up. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. <laughs> Well, we're very excited to be able to have you and uh, kick off our diversity straight up for the new year in 2023. Yes, 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 we are. You know, Maurice, before we, we get started, Sarah and I usually like to have a, a conversation about something that's on our mind today. Something's on my mind. And, you know, uh, Sarica, uh what's really been on my mind lately, I've been having a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, with individuals and it's been so valuable you know i'm thinking of i've been i have this best friend of mine and i've been having these these conversations with him gosh i've had four or five of them in the last month and it's really one of those things where i have this person who has really no knowledge of some of the social ills that we're dealing with and challenges with racism and and he's a he's a black man by the way and we have these conversations about politics and about society and it's interesting to hear somebody speak with no knowledge of what they're saying. And I, I remember being the type of person I would always want to challenge that. Right. I was always want to prove that I was right. But what mm -hmm. I've discovered is really just allowing people to be in their space and challenge with their words and their questions to ask, to understand, not to prove that I'm, I'm right. What I've been discovering is these conversations have been really deep. My friends are learning. I'm learning from my friends. Like these folks have no, a couple of my, my friends, my, uh, the one I'm thinking of just has no um, true knowledge of how to connect politics to society, to relations, relations to economics. And I'm helping him connect the dots just by using his words and having these conversations and not trying to be uh, forceful or try to prove that I'm right. Mm -hmm. And that's been so refreshing. And so I wanted to share that with y'all because I think it's just, it's good stuff. I would just encourage people keep keep having them them conversation over a beer or over a, a cocktail, whatever you over food, whatever you do, because those conversations matter. And I'm watching my friend. I'm watching him transform. And it's just been really fun. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Anthony, for sharing what's on your mind and uh, how the conversations have been transpiring. You know, I'm a strong, strong believer in seeking to understand first before being understood as when you think about it that's really the foundation for effective you know cultural communications and um i'm a work in progress folks i'm uh, this is something that i'm always continuing to uh develop and the reason why is because you know especially when we think about topics that are based strongly on our held beliefs and value systems like politics race religion gender identity plug in anything these uh you know tend to evoke such strong emotions during mm -hmm. communications that simply relying on facts and logic and throwing that out it's not going to work as well right because that's going to allow people to lean in into their emotions first their value systems and that's what could drive their decision making process and this is something that you know i've been continuing to work on is um, we need to first of all be able to address and acknowledge their emotions how are they feeling they need to be validated that they're being seen heard and being valued in the conversation 
that doesn't mean that I need to agree or disagree. I just need to acknowledge and validate, right? Because that's how people that are open to wanting to engage in dialogue. Otherwise, it's going to be quick to shut it off. And so um, I think then it allows us to really then uh, lean in and listen to them and try to understand where they're coming from. And I think that that's the only way that we're going to be able to collectively be able to address concerns seek solutions and it's not going to happen overnight it may not happen over one conversation yet i have known in my experience that you can build trust even with the stranger with one conversation even if you just meet them one time if you're willing to seek to understand and you're not judging and you can agree to disagree but keep the civility and respect in the communications but again um i agree with you that uh, this is going to be vital and it's going to continue to evolve because depending on how people show up with their multi-dimension mm -hmm. politics religion sexual identity orientation that's part of their identity and if it's a strong aspect of their identity it's going to be a trigger point right, right. and that's when the highest emotions are going to be evoked and so it's something that i think that uh what we communicate you know whether you're facilitating a dialogue or engaging in conversation right. always always so, understand right. and um challenge facts Don't and challenge acknowledge emotions yeah. Challenge facts, don't challenge people and challenge facts in a way that you're seeking to understand, not mm -hmm. putting somebody in a box. And that's what, you know, that's what I've really over the last couple of years have really, really learned. And it, it's just interesting to to see it just in a, a non-professional setting, just having a conversation. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mo, what do you think, Mo? <laughs> well, I, when you when you describe that scenario, interestingly, I thought about myself uh, in my earlier years. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, not to the same level as the person that you're describing, but I think back sometimes to different ideologies that I had maybe 15 years ago and I cringe yeah. because I'm like, oh gosh, I was so ill-informed. <laughs> but some of it was because of the space that I was in, the way that I was raised, you know, I'm, I'm you know, uh, come from a very diverse family. Um, and, you know, I identify as Black and Mexican. Uh, I think uh, many people identify me as Black, as a Black man, and I absolutely embrace that, but I was raised by, you know, my the, the Mexican side of my family, um, and, and in many cases, a white passing, and also white, because my grandfather was white. And so a lot of my thinking came from that perspective, even though that wasn't, you know, I, I don't identify uh for personal reasons with my grandfather's family we just have a relationship and so it's for that right. reason not because of the the specific you know cultural identity but you know that wasn't my reality but my thought process was based on their experiences and their identities and not my own and then when i found myself in some of those some of those organic experiences where the things that people told me were true and i was like no that doesn't make sense what, what do you mean like, i'll give you an example like i was i was one who would say you know why is there a black a bet if there was a a, a, a wet that would be a problem and now i'm like that was such a very you know um uh my perspective on it was very limited and very skewed and now i, I have a better understanding of why and why you know you know sure. from an equity perspective that fills some gaps that you know that you know you know for black entertainment weren't there you know or, or, or existed the other thing too that i thought about was that whole listening part um and i remember doing this leadership development program at yale as a matter of fact and um 
And one of the most impactful segments was on the three ways of listening, listening to fix, listening to win, or listening to understand. Right. And, and sometimes I, all are appropriate. You know, it depends on that conversation. If someone comes into my office and wants to talk, talk about an issue, uh, do you actually want me to give you a solution or are you just venting? You want me to help you kind of think through it or do you want me to uh uh you know you know whatever and so establishing that i think is important too because for my own personal development sometimes i do just want you to listen sometimes i want you to help me think through it you know um, yeah. and that may change depending on what it is depending on where i am in that particular situation yeah well good stuff appreciate your your feedback let's get into let's get into you let's let's talk about um maurice Eric, I'm sure you've got, sure. got thousands of questions. <laughs> What's on our guest's mind? You know, one of the things I, I want to know, Maurice, is, is as I was thinking about your, your transition, I look looking at your career and, and uh, Sacred mm -hmm. Heart University, where you're at now in your role, it, it's an institution that I understand is really founded on social justice. Mm -hmm. And I was reading an article about your hire and, 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 and um, where you were quoted as saying that you wanted to really bolster DEIB so that, you know, profoundly cement social justice as an organic way of life at SHU, you know, and and that kind of speaks to your bio and kind of what you just got done saying that your ethnic um, and other identities have developed and continue to cultivate your, your purpose and passion. So do you feel in your, talk to me about your current role at SHU and is, how is that married to your personal values? Sure, well, I chose the role because it is very closely connected to my personal values. And I think I'm at the, well, I know that I'm at the point in my life and my career that if that's not the case, there's dissonance and I can't operate with that sort of dissonance. Now, that does not mean that I can't uh, or don't anticipate challenges or don't anticipate uh times where things won't line up and be congruent in such a way I can handle challenges. Uh, but at the core, our foundations and, and, and the things that make up our core values have to align. And, and for me, and I, and I said this very directly to the president and other senior leaders during my interview process, that what my non-negotiable for coming here or, or going to, to any place is that we have a set of stated values that don't align with our real values that don't show up in practice. And it doesn't mean that we're perfect, you know, and it, it, that it has to be perfect. Uh, I'm under no illusion that it will ever, it will ever be perfect, but we have to be um, very well aligned with what we say and how we operate. And then we have to identify those gaps and be very intentional about filling those. And as long as we're doing that, then I can be here. And so the social justice foundation of Sacred Heart is what attracted me to the institution. But I wanted to find out how does that show up in practice? How does that show up in the day-to-day -day, you know, uh, uh, operations of the institution for faculty, staff, and students? And even with needs for improvement, is the institution really willing to take those steps and move forward? And, and it has been. I can honestly say that it absolutely has been uh, a place where as a DEI leader, as a chief diversity and inclusion officer, I can truly lead from the perspective of DEIB and have the support of not only the president, but the other senior leaders and the board of uh, trustees as well. And so that has been um, uh, very encouraging, as you can imagine. And I've only been here for, I guess, yeah. five months now. Um, 
and it has made those five months very fruitful, which is a lot to speak for such a short amount of time. Uh, Maurice, you talked about the op the values of the institution and whether or not it translates into um, action. Mm -hmm. Sacred Heart University is a private Catholic institution, and we know that in the current landscape um, with the different legislation, et cetera, that is out there, even from a private Catholic institution, I know that's a little bit different nuance because you're in a different category, you have a little bit more independence and autonomy. How do you navigate when key stakeholders like donors, alum, community members, and potential students make complaints that SHU is less Christian due to cool. their acceptance of you know, LGBTQ plus community and the promotion of their beliefs and various inclusion initiatives on campus like your annual National Coming Out Day? How do you sure. and leaders navigate this? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, we deal with that quite often. My, I, I wanna say maybe my third or fourth day on the job, I had a call from a prospective parent who was concerned about the level of emphasis that we put on inclusive excellence, or at the time, just you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Even from you know, you know, sharing pronouns, you know, that was wait, why are we doing that? And so, you know, we contend with those questions a lot. But what this institution does a really good job at is connecting all of those things back to the Catholic intellectual tradition and the foundation of the institution from the Vatican II. Now, I'm not an expert on it, so I can't <laughs> go into great detail about it, but what I understand about Vatican II is that that was a point of which the Catholic Church decided to uh, to reevaluate some things and really understand moving forward how the, the church itself really service the world, the community, and not itself. Um, and so, you know, again, that was the birth of this institution. And so in many cases, and, and I'm thinking every case that I can think of where those types of challenges came forward, you know, leaders stand on, well, actually, if we look at the tenets of, you know, uh, our core values, the mission vision, um, but even more broadly, the Catholic intellectual tradition as, you know, uh, really defined through that Vatican II, this is what we're supposed to be doing. So we go back to those values and say, this is why we still have, uh, why we have care for uh, people in the queer community. This is why we care for people who attend the Catholic institution, but don't identify as Catholic. Uh, you know, for example, our interfaith ministry is an example of, of that, which I really appreciate, because while we have, you know, our institutional Catholic chaplain and priests, we also have uh, uh, chaplains from other faiths, uh, from um, Islam, from Buddhist, uh, Orthodox, Protestant, um, and, and those identities vary. And so we stand back on the, 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 the Catholic intellectual tradition, and that's how we address those in many cases. And the last thing I'll say is the president, uh, uh, you know, I have to give kudos to uh, uh, John Patillo because he is really, he he uses his position as the president to make really strong statements about where we stand. And so, you know, it, it, it and that helps because from the top down, all of our stakeholders to include faculty, staff, students, the trustees, alumni, they understand where he stands because he doesn't mind making those, those statements, even at the National Coming Out Day event that you uh, mentioned. There's a transcript that actually, uh, uh, I think it's on the Inclusive Excellence website for us as well. But his his remarks were profound. It was very direct. It was with love, but it was very direct about you know how this place 
uh, is and will continue to be a place for everyone, despite how we identify or, or, or you know, uh, yeah, regardless of how we identify. So obviously, the Sacred Heart has a clear, clear stance in terms of uh, inclusion for all. Sure. Mm-hmm. How has that impacted, again, your uh, donors, uh, your potential students? Want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, well, I don't know that it has had a profound impact on uh, donors and that just only, be, you know, I'm, I'm still new. So, sure. you know, I'm still kind of getting <laughs> uh, room to, you know, some of the ins and outs. So I don't know, at least as of right now, I don't know that that has impacted in either direction. Um, but I know we do have uh, uh, donors who have a particular interest in underrepresented or minoritized uh, identities who give to, for you know, scholarships. Um, working with that, we have a brewing science certificate uh, for, you know, brewing beer. And um, we have a group of people who will help us fundraise and um, to, to, to get more scholarships to diversify that field, which is brewing, uh, which includes black and brown people, but also women, uh, folks who identify as women. And so we do have people who appreciate our stance on inclusive excellence and donate because of that. I have not experienced yet a situation where a donor has done the opposite, um, not at least at this institution. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had other experiences where that has been the case, but uh, but not yet. And I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about that. And I hope we can share that. <laughs> Go ahead, Sarah, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Yes, I was going to say it made me think of, you know, I know uh, another institution where there was, they, um, you know, have a, you know, strong, inclusive uh, excellence program. Mm -hmm. Yet when it came to accepting a gift from an LGBTQ Mm -hmm. plus alum, Mm -hmm. it wasn't accepted. And this is where, (laughs) so I think this is where we really have to uh, look at what are you saying and is it translating into operations because otherwise it is going to have an impact on your alum donors and students. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I I agree. I I, I don't know if it's the same situation, but I'm I'm familiar with uh, a a similar situation where it was a very large gift and, um, and uh you know but that donor had some specific things that they wanted to do but because of the political landscape uh of that particular system the university decided that you know it's much easier just to not accept it so you know never mind but that says a lot about where we stand too it it does it does Mm -hmm. good segue you had mentioned you just mentioned you know your experiences at other institutions and that kind of is a good segue to something i was thinking about as i look at your your career path and look at your life path and your lived experience that you mm-hmm. speak very proudly about in your bio. You know, you're born and raised in the South. You know, mm-hmm. you went to school at HBCUs. You lived in Savannah, by the way. I got family in Decatur and, okay. <laughs> and Stone Mountain and uh-huh. uh, Smyrna. Uh-huh. So I, I love Cobb County. I love Atlanta. But, um, but you, you know, you spent most of your life and your career in, in, in this space surrounded mm-hmm. by black and brown people. And I, and I looked at your career path and I said, well, he spent a couple of years at Yale. Mm-hmm. And he went into an Ivy League institution. And I wonder, can you talk about that experience from from your perspective, what you learned from that mm-hmm. and what you were able to uh, how you were able to impact that institution? So I think there are probably mm-hmm. leaders out there in your role who who could learn from from that experience from you. You know, one of my proudest um, moments or uh 
things that I've accomplished as having attended Savannah State University. Very proud of that uh, because of, you know, it being an HBCU. And a lot of the scrutiny that I got from some friends, maybe some family, uh, or just, you know, yeah, other excuse acquaintances. Me, for, for our, for our yeah. listeners, that's historically Black colleges and universities. Yes, make- yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the scrutiny that I got, you know, from that um, was, well, is that really going to prepare you for the real world? And, you know, I never understood what that meant. That always irritated me. I couldn't quite understand or articulate it uh, at that time why it irritated me. But like, what do you mean? Like, you know, well, I mean, the world is not going to be this very safe, uh, you know, black and brown space that is, uh, you know, historically black university. So is that don't you want to go someplace where you're going to have the real experience of what you might face, etc. But then as I grew, um, you know, both just in age, but also in my academic and professional journey, th- that question, I, you know, I began to frame why that was such a, a problematic question for me, because the assumption in that question is that a black space can't prepare you, but a white space can. Um, uh, and, and, and you know, I took issue with that. Not that there's an issue with going to a white institution, because I don't believe that at all. I think, you know, that there's opportunity for everywhere in all of these spaces. But um, but my HBCU prepared me in the sense that I learned who I was as a person. I learned a lot about myself and, and identities that, you know, maybe I didn't know so much about, about the, the diversity within the Black and Brown community that people often kind of uh, relegate to being uh, just a segregated, homogenous environment. That's just not the case. Um, And so I learned a lot about myself and, and, and that helped me because I no longer felt the need to cold switch or cold cover who I was. I could be who I was. I could speak with the, you know, the, um, Southern twang in my accent, the Gullah Geechee influences from that uh, space and not feel like that I was less than or an imposter because of that. So because I had that development in that space, when I got to Georgia Southern and then went, or Armstrong and then when I got to Georgia Southern and, and Yale, I was very confident in who I was and I didn't feel like that I had to show up and compete with anyone because of their identity. I'm here with my credentials, with my experience, but also my my identities and lived experiences, and I'm offering that in the same way that you are. And so it helped me kind of you know, get rid of some of that imposterism that that exists previously. Um, yeah, I got, yeah. yeah. Do you feel do you feel that you had that reciprocated impact on Yale, who maybe there was this fear of we're we're bringing this this black man and this diversity mm-hmm. position onto this white Ivy League campus. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you broke that barrier down with them and helped impact them? With- I wouldn't, you know, just I wouldn't have the hubris to say that I broke that down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I do think that I broke through um, in a lot of spaces. Um, Yale is, you know, I forgot how many years, but 300 plus years old. It takes a lot to really, yeah. re, you know, to nurture and reshape those things. And I do sure. think that I made significant strides, not only at the School of Nursing, but across the Yale Enterprise. Yeah. Um, you know, be it, what I would say is I had uh, several colleagues who would reach out to uh, to just say, 
you know, thank you for just showing up and saying what, what I wanted to say. And it's not that I'm just a, a really super aggressive person. I'm very uh, strategic about how I, I present things, but I am going to speak the truth. And I'll think about how to frame it in such a way that uh, that is going to reach as many people as possible. I'm not coming at, uh, at those difficult topics in a way that is uh, chastising individuals, but actually addressing the issue, uh, you know, kind of as you alluded to earlier and uh and i think a lot of people appreciated that because yale because of its rich history um and its you know status can be intimidating especially to a person of color uh, or or some other underrepresented identity so i do think i broke through in those ways by connecting with individuals and just demonstrating how you can and should be able to show up as yourself and not have to code switch who you are maybe you know i think i have this love-hate relationship with code switching or code covering because i do think that there are certain things that may not be appropriate in a professional setting but as an identity i should not have to you know, change what I wear in terms of something that might be culturally specific or how I wear my hair or the way that right. I speak uh, to appease or uh, to, what do we call that, assimilation. Um, right. Yeah. Oh my, I think Amarazia hit it on the nail in terms of how we always say this journey begins with you. It'll end mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. So take the time to get to know who you are yeah. and um, your strengths so that you can be comfortable in your skin in whatever space you mm -hmm. go in. Right. And uh, yeah. you said something about uh, my daughter and I were having a conversation about piercings. Mm -hmm. And I remember for the longest time, I, mean, I had a nose piercing when I was a little, little baby in India. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when I came here, and I didn't have it, and I wanted to have that in college, and I had it, but then when I got into the professional world, I didn't think that it was looked kindly upon, so I took it out, but it was something mm -hmm. that's so part of my mm -hmm. culture, but it's something that if you're comfortable and confident in yourself, you should be able to help mm -hmm. elevate your culture and still feel good about right. it showing up in terms of who you are. You know, I want to uh, switch gears here a little bit. Uh, you had... Um, mentioned earlier about a very, very strong interfaith ministry at Sacred Heart University. Mm -hmm. And I actually remembered a previous conversation that you and I had about it that I was literally blown away that you just shared with our listeners in terms of the diverse representation of religious chaplains that you have mm -hmm. at this university. It's a private yeah. institution, a private Catholic institution. You can do what you want, yet you're intentional about ensuring there is a inclusion and representation from Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, mm -hmm. Russian Orthodox to Protestant chaplains. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it's mind blowing, frankly. And I yeah. want to ask you, I know you mentioned Catholic uh, intellectual tradition, right? Is that did I say mm -hmm. that right? Yes. Mm hmm. What are other tips you can give to other institutions who are trying to achieve greater religious or spiritual representation as well as inclusion? And do you think that being a private or public or private public combination institution makes a barrier or difference to trying to get to that uh, greater inclusion and representation, especially in today's uh, yeah. economy and landscape and marketplace that we have? Yeah, I, I think it, you know, I'm a, I'm a mission focused person. And so that's always the first thing I look at. I think about that. I'm going to get to the point, but I think about that even from the context, you know, of my fraternity. Um, uh, I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And, you know, a lot of the work that I've done as an advisor to college chapters 
always recenters them back around the mission. Does this support our mission? And it may not be an obvious connection, but we need to make sure that everything that we do supports the mission and the, and the vision. Uh, otherwise, why are we doing it? You know, so, sort of thing. That's, that's just my personal thing. And so anyway, that, that trans transfers over to my professional uh, thoughts and, and the same thing goes to Sacred Heart. I look at what our mission is and typically, and, you know, I'm speaking in, in general terms, but, you know, uh, even the Catholic institutions or religious institutions, the the missions are written very similarly, uh, but it's about how we actually live up to that, that, you know, that makes a difference. And so the, in the same way that at Sacred Heart, we point everything back to the mission. That's what I recommend that we all do because we need to be accountable to that. And who's holding us accountable to it? One thing about Sacred Heart that I thought was unique, and I'm not uh, an expert on Catholic institutions, but there's a division and a vice president dedicated to mission integration across the uh, um, institution, which I think is is phenomenal. And that person's role is to remind everyone in every department and every functional area at every time of what our mission is or what that means and how you operate and function. Um, and so that helps, yeah, that helps me yeah. because inclusive excellence, inclusive excellence is inextricably bound to this mission. And so that helps give power and steam to my work um, in, in, in the work for diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. And it provides accountability and justification for why these things are important and why we need to be open and supportive of people of different faiths and different sexual identities and gender identities, et cetera. It doesn't mean that even at your core belief that you, you know, that it aligns with your spiritual belief or it, it's not proselytizing. Um, it is understanding that we have differences, and even if we connect that to the the the, the intellectual tradition of Catholicism, um, that we have care for all people. So at its basic level, we care for all people, and that's, and the, that's, that's the anchor. Yeah. So the yeah. mission integration uh, position, I think that's a great tip. Mm -hmm. to give any institution or sure. businesses and organizations mm -hmm. yes they all have missions that you know especially those that do um say we do embrace diversity equity inclusion engagement mm -hmm. belonging or whatever yet it's again how do you transcend that into the operations right. and you can say it but a lot of times when you think about deie sometimes it's around race or gender they don't continue mm -hmm. to go and populate into the other areas that you need right. to be intentional right. and mindful mm -hmm. so that's a, a tip that is i appreciate you sharing with our listeners mission integration you know position and part of your infrastructure so yep. you can be held accountable yep. and responsible and that person is a senior leader and so it, 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 from 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 senior leadership throughout the institution uh, yeah and i think it's it's it's, it's profound Amen. and that's your position too you are at the part of the executive team right mm -hmm. Maurice? Yes. and uh, yes. was that mm -hmm. part of that was that part of your decision making when you were uh looking at considering yes well, how much it, of it did you give weight <laughs> to that no it absolutely was a part of it and i knew uh i i read or understood rather that the position reported directly to the president, but I needed to make sure. And then before I accepted, I, you know, I walked back <laughs> through those questions to ensure that it was empowered in a way that I felt that it should be, because, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm sure I'm probably, you know, preaching to the choir, but, you know, a lot of DEI leaders and executives aren't really truly empowered with positional authority, with resources, you know, all the things to actually make. Uh, change 
but that was something that I that I wanted to make sure of. And it, so the position before I assumed the position was inaugural uh, and it did not report directly to the president It reported to human resources and then for a short extent to the provost's office. Uh, but once the position was vacated, um, uh, we the institution brought in a consultant to say, let's let's get someone else to look at what we have and help us figure it out and and repositioning that uh, the CDO position was one of the recommendations that they uh, accepted before I even accepted the position. So I just wanted, you know, when I came in, I said, hey, I saw that. I saw that report. Yeah. Um, you know, I know this. I want to make sure that this is the case before I come in. And it, it was and it is. And, and the president also made a point when he sent out the announcement to the institution the day that I started uh, that, hey, this position reports directly to me now. It is, you know, it it, it is reached this, I guess, highest level in terms of. Um, well, you. you <laughs> <laughs> you are preaching to the choir. We're really happy for you because uh, <laughs> I see that see that scenario often. So definitely very, very yes, yes, yes. And so well, and, and again, it was a, a, a big decision making yeah. um, uh, point that I had to make before I accepted. Well, before we get to our our, our last segment, our, our uh, we've got a couple more segments, but one last question: um, as you think sure, about sure. your career and where you're at right now, and you've been you're five months in. You've got this position, you're reporting to the president, everything's in line. So what keeps Maurice, as you think about your ability to impact change in this space, what keeps Maurice up at night? Oh, um, what keeps me up is, is, is the people or the issues or needs that I haven't given attention to yet. Not that I don't care, but just because it's 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 a lot. I think people assume that you know, um, as a chief diversity officer, that I'm going to directly handle all diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging issues. And that is, uh, again, going back to that issue of being properly resourced and all of that. Because you know, and, and I made this point um, to some of my uh, you know fe fellow senior leaders, like you know, and I use HR as an example. The HR VP and I work very closely together. Great colleague, uh, but I said you know it, the, the 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 VP for HR isn't going to be managing payroll. That person is not going to be managing, you know, benefits or new hire orientation. That person is providing leadership uh, and a direction, and, and you know, all of these things. But there are other people who are experts in those areas that really make up that entire functional area, um, and that's something that I have to build and develop because inclusive excellence is new here at Sacred Heart. So again, going back to the question, the things that keep me up at night are those things that aren't yet developed. And I wonder how that impacts a person or a group's sense of belonging um, uh, here. And uh, and it makes me, it keeps me, even though it keeps me up and it also keeps me energized because I, I adopt the mantra that I'm never grown, I'm always growing. And that's the, you know, the pursuit of, of lifelong learning. Um, and and that holds true even in this space in this role i'm not beyond reproach i'm not beyond learning and growing for myself and i always seek those opportunities as well and to also hear and learn from the people that i serve that's the most important part uh, um and so 
you know, sometimes at night I'm like, gosh, you know what? I haven't connected with this particular identity group yet. I need to find a way, you know what I mean? And I, yeah. I'm a, I think we are often our, our own worst critics, um, but it keeps me up, but it also keeps yeah. me energized. And so when I come to work every day, I'm ne there's never an absence of something to do because it's all. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Never, so never, true. Never, never a boring day. <laughs> right. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go on to the next segment, which is what's on our listeners' mind. I wonder what our listeners are thinking right now. So listeners, continue uh, to send your comments, questions uh, to us as we love to hear from you. Um, Maurice, we have a question from Lauren from St. Louis. And cool. um, this is an opportunity for you as a guest executive for today's episode to be able to um, answer Lauren's uh, question. So given the economic downturn, there was a recent layoff at my company and many employees were blindsided, thought the process was unfair and colleagues didn't have a chance to say their goodbyes. Even my manager was not aware this was going to occur, so he wasn't able to provide feedback as to which team members to retain. And some even thought it was discriminatory. How can companies who lay off employees do so in a way that is uh, considerate of creating equity inclusion in that process so that people are still feeling engaged as much as they can, given the circumstances of, you know, layoffs occurring? Yeah, <laughs> the word that you said, keeping people engaged, that's the, I think that's the most important part to me. I'm a, a, a huge advocate of transparency. If something is good and something's going well, we need let's be transparent about it. Let's brag on the things that we're doing good. But if we aren't doing well, if there's a, a, a hiccup, we all equally need to be transparent about that. That helps build trust, um, you know, with the people that we serve and that and, and that we're ultimately responsible for in terms of fostering that in, uh, sense of inclusion and belonging. Um, and when we know things that are gonna ultimately impact people on a personal level, on a professional level, or whatever level, and 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 we withhold that, that's that's not transparent and that's not something that fosters uh, trust. And that damages the the infrastructure, the, the foundation of what we do in terms, you know, on the DEIB side of it. And so I'm always, you know, preaching transparency to my senior leader colleagues, like, you know, even when it's difficult. And I think, you know, even when it's not good news, and, and, you know, this is not foolproof now, so don't get me wrong, but <laughs> people tend to respect honesty. Um, and even in that moment, you know, I might be upset, I might hate this news, but I still have respect for you enough for th that you were able to share that with me. And, you know, in the future, I could still say, no, that was, a, you know, that was, they had honor. They had, that was a great place to work. And here's why I would come back or why I would recommend you to take that role or to, or to submit that application for admission or to do uh, anything because they at least had the integrity enough to, uh, to be open and honest with me and let me be a part of the process. Even if that doesn't change the outcome, at least I'm a part of the process and understand what that means for me and how to move forward and any mechanisms that the university or this or the organization has to support me moving forward you know um and so i think that transparency and engagement part is is critical oh thank you so much maurice lauren thank you, thank you for asking yes, a loaded question as we're seeing that happen left right and center right now <laughs> yes. so trust integrity yes. transparency and inclusion in the process so that folks will still know that they were being seen heard and valued at the end of the day 
Yeah. I want to I want to add something quick to that. Sure. One of the things, and I appreciated this from my, from my, the president here, uh, uh, John Patillo, uh, you know, in our initial one on one meeting, you know, we talked about what's my level of autonomy? What things should I run past you? What things do you want to approve? And, you know, that sort of thing, just so I kind of know how to structure the way that I communicate, the way that I make decisions, et cetera. You know, his response was very liberating and empowering for me to just act as the, the you know, in, in my capacity. But one thing that he did say is, you know, but if you make a mistake, if you mess up, if, 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 if something collapses, uh, that's okay. Just don't, hide it you know don't hide behind don't, don't come up with excuses let's just be honest about it and we'll work together to fix it and i appreciated that so much because i mean not that i would lie about it anyway i mean that's just right. not in my character to do so but i appreciate appreciated him making that statement because it spoke to this th that theme of transparency that even when yeah. things are difficult that let's just be transparent and let's figure out how to move forward together because we haven't grown from you know 2500 students to 10,000 students without being risk you know by being risk averse so you know we can take risks and sometimes that means we may fail uh, or or things may fall apart you know maybe in a small way maybe in a dramatic way but let's be honest about it so that we don't uh have that repeat itself and that we can figure out how to best support anybody who's impacted by that was well, encouraging innovation because if you're yes. trying something yeah. yes. and it doesn't work i mean that to me is you're, you're learning right sure. because it's yeah, a different absolutely. path but that growth is astounding what did you say 2500 to 10,000 10, in, in a couple I, I don't know exactly how many years but a couple of years yeah not not a a, a very wide time span um that's and great. yeah it's grown exponentially and we're catching up to that growth i mean you can imagine growing that fast so quick you know now we're having to go back and really shape reshape structures um, infrastructures for the way we operate the way we define certain things the way we staff certain areas uh but the good things is the thing is all of those uh improvements are being or those needs are being identified and those improvements are being implemented sure Sure. So the word to our, to our CEOs out there, our leaders looking for your next leader, this is the type of, this is the job description here, yes. how, you, how, you, how you find a, a great C, a CDO. Give them flexibility, freedom, get out of their way, let them make mistakes, and we learn together and we're transparent. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Well, absolutely. let's, uh, let's uh, transition. Uh, we've got uh, one more segment, our surprise that we told you about. We're going we're gonna to bring Logan online here because Logan's our- Okay referee here because uh he's got our surprise you there logan uh, logan is our producer hi hi logan hi uh, logan so we, we've got a, a game we call maurice uh, it's an icebreaker called the diversity thumbball uh, okay so if we were all in the room together uh we would we would have fun with this ball but this is a, a soccer ball soccer shaped ball and it's got a, a bunch of random questions about diversity and equity inclusion engagement on it and so sure. uh, we typically okay. throw this ball around and wherever your thumb lands left or right thumb you can uh, pick the random question and and ask it and then answer it so what we're going to do since logan has the ball we'll start with you and we'll have logan throw it up in the air and wherever his thumb lands logan gets to pick our questions for us so uh, that's our okay. surprise for today so all right logan <laughs> so maurice is going first Yes. Reese is going first. All right, here we go. All right, I'm in the hot seat. Listen, <laughs> this is a soccer ball with questions on it. Uh, it's a soft soccer ball, listeners, so yes. liability is <laughs> extremely low. 
Good and point. you still can have fun doing this virtually. I'm the All only right, one Logan. actually in the studio, so I'm, I'll try not to injure myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way that Anthony throws, it always goes over my head. So I know. <laughs> All right, Maurice. Uh, what is a time where you shared an unpopular idea? Mm. Gosh, I, I think I share those probably every time I do a workshop. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I'll t- hmm. that takes me to, yeah. So it takes me to, I think this, yeah, this was 2020, summer of 2020. So just the shape that that is uh, around the time of George Floyd, uh, Amart Aubrey, uh, which is very close to where I was in Georgia, um, and and uh, I think around the Taylor, and uh, you know, so there was a lot of activism and thoughts around uh, policing and um, defunding the police, those sorts of things. Um, and particularly from the perspective of law enforcement's engagement with black men. So here I am, a black man, uh, and I was tasked or asked, asked slash tasked, you know how that goes, voluntold, uh, <laughs> yes. to facilitate a, a two-week series of mandatory training for university police department, which was predominantly white male in the rural South. And so I knew that I was going into that with bias, both from my perspective, but also from their perspective. And I was trying to, you know, uh, acknowledge the bias that I had about going into this environment and, and so that it wouldn't show up, but also anticipating some things because what I did learn was that the prior DEI facilitator that they had, um, in their words, wasn't effective um and that was because that person was very uh in many ways kind of attacked individuals um you know you are racist because and you know and and i'll probably preach into the choir again but we know that that's not really uh, an effective uh uh way to facilitate those conversations and so um you know i went into this environment and when I walked in, the tension was palpable. Um, and, you know, I started the way that I would normally start, just kind of very structured. And um, and I talked about our, uh, you know, we kind of uh, do the norming thing where we talked about th- these are our ground rules or our mutual agreements and the way that we're going to navigate through these conversations. Um, and but before that, we did, uh, and this was a big thing at the time, the you know land acknowledgments and a labor acknowledgement. Uh, so also acknowledging the labor of the enslaved uh, Africans in the country and what that has done in terms of developing a country. And that was something that, I mean, it, that happens before I even really get into it. And so the tension got thicker just even in that moment because people out oh, here we go you know this, this this started already and i saw people just kind of shut out and so i had to do a lot um in that kind of norming mutual agreement phase to really reshape to stop and let's talk about what i'm here to do and what i'm not here to do um and uh and i think that was very helpful for those people because although they did you know they were automatically i think they they came in this is just my uh my feeling 
they came in looking for it to be like it was the last time. Yeah. Um, and when I started with that land acknowledgement and labor acknowledgement, even though that wasn't something that was very like beating you over the head, it was, you know, those things are pretty direct. Um, yeah. And I think that for them said, yep, this is exactly what this is about to be. I'm over it. It kind of leaned back and, you know, uh, side eyes. Um, and so again, you know, just kind of getting back to the point, I, I really had to do a lot to reshape the, the, this is what my point, um, this is what I hope to get out of this. And this is what I'm not here to do. And so if you find that at any point you feel that I'm doing th these types of things that I'm saying, I'm not here to do, please let's stop and let's talk about it because I'm human too. And, and so what I had to do was show my humanness and, and the fact yeah. that uh, I'm willing to be vulnerable and say that even as a diversity professional, as a diversity leader, executive, I'm, I'm not perfect. And, and, yeah. and so you should also take that to understand that going through this doesn't mean that you're expected to walk away and be perfect. It means that you should be committed to learning and growing all the time for the purpose of the people that we serve. And you could, I mean, people's shoulders literally relax and, it, and, and the, and the dialogue began yeah. like there. We, I didn't even get into the workshop yet. People just started saying, oh, well, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, dot, dot, dot. So anyway, long-winded answer. I, I really wanted to shape everything so you could understand the context. No, good stuff. That, that difference between being that facilitator and being a, a teacher, you weren't there to tell them what to sure, do again. You were there sure. to listen to them. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Next slogan. Who's next? You tell me. Sadika. How about you go, Sadika? <laughs> Ready to catch that ball virtually. All right. Here we go. <laughs> uh, when did you first learn about bias or hate in the world? Mm. Have you had that one before, Sadika? So I think you may have. I can't recall. Although I think... Um... And even if you did, there's a lot of people that may not have heard the story yet. No, 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 no. It's a really good one. I can tell you that um, one of the I've always um, as an as an immigrant, I, I grew up always, you know, being told that if you work hard and you put your time and you're dedicated, that things will come to fruition. Mm -hmm. And so for me when it comes to biases, especially when it comes from a race and gender perspective, sometimes I kind of put that in the back burner, just because this is just who I always navigated that all my life, that I'm a woman, I'm a girl, I'm a, you know, an Indian, I'm a, so that, I guess I'm just used to that. Yeah. So then I focused on my work. Mm. Never, and always thought that meritocracy will win out. Mm-hmm. And I think it was about maybe seven years ago that um, it was right in my face that I realized that I may believe in meritocracy, but the roadblocks to meritocracy are biases that exist. Mm -hmm. And I know that I have biases, but I can't, how do I go about controlling other people's biases mm -hmm. that actually influences the process and then ultimately the outcome? And um, in that professional setting, I think that that was something that made me just um, realize that, okay, I need to take things into my own control, my own destiny. And that was actually the impetus of establishing Nikea Diversity Consulting. Mm -hmm. And that was a really hard, hard uh, one to swallow because it was people that I knew and worked with. 
and have respect for. Yep. Thanks for sharing. I do. I do remember that story vividly, and that's uh, that's a deep one. Yep. All right, Logan. I'm ready. All right. Here we go. Yep. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good one. No matter what. Um, recount a time you felt like an outsider. Oh, geez. Do I count the times? Um, you know, I'll probably, I, there's so many times, but I'm thinking of, I'll go back to my childhood, actually. I remember the first time I got, I got moved from, I was in a K-12 school. But in fifth grade, they moved students who were apparently smart mm-hmm. into what they call. Well, there's a couple things to that. They moved us to this other school, and it was called Expo, Expanding Pupil Opportunities. Well, I was told I was going to get transferred to the school. I was basically voluntold. My mom already knew about it. But I also learned that part of that plan was not only to move some academically strong kids to a, this other school, but they were trying to. Integ- I learned later in life that they were trying to integrate school districts. Integration plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was part of a broader plan, and I didn't really know that. But that was the first time I had. You know, I grew up around, you know, pretty biracial neighborhood. I had a lot of. I grew up with mostly white people around me, but that was the first time I had been in a school or I didn't see hardly anybody that looked like me, at least the, the school I was at kindergarten through, through, through fourth grade, I, I saw a lot of people that looked like me, but, but, but moving out here, uh, moving to this new school sort of uh, changed things for me. It was one of those moments when I realized, did I, did my mom move me here because I'm smart or because did my mom move me here? Why are all these white people in my class? Where's Mike? You know, where's my, all my, my friends. And I felt like an outsider, not only because I was new at the school, but I also didn't, gosh, there wasn't a lot of us black people anyway. And I didn't really see anybody. And I'm like, why did I get separated from, from my friends and my people? Why? And I felt like an outsider for a while. It turned out that after a few weeks in class, I realized transferring recesses that there were a lot of black kids. They just weren't in my classroom. And the recent when the recesses got switched and all that, I got to see more people. But that was um, I felt like an outsider uh, for for quite a while there. I'm like, why did I get moved here? And why aren't there any? Where are my friends? And where where are the other black kids at? So it was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you um, for sharing that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for sharing, Anthony. Cool. That must have been a very challenging times having to transition and navigate through that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it probably. I don't really. I assume looking back that it was, but I don't know that it was challenges. I just kind of, yeah, kind of was there. I it's looking back now, a lot of the things that I question, I understand better now. Maybe it's good that I didn't know those things <laughs> at ten years old. Yeah, I, I think I had a similar situation. I, I went to uh, middle school. They had a magnet program, and I got accepted coming from elementary to middle, but the spaces ran out quickly. And so the first year I was a residential student, meaning that, you know, I was just in with with everyone else. But then the second year when the space came open, I actually moved to the, the magnet part. It was like a totally, it was the same school, but a totally different experience. And it was certainly a lot more white people and, uh, and a lot more affluent people. Uh, and so I can, in some ways, uh, uh, identify with that kind of experience being moved and isolated in that way it was very isolating 
Well, thank you for playing our surprise game. Of course. We appreciate it. <laughs> well, we're um, wrapping up here and uh, just want to ask you, Maurice, is there any other um, advice you have for our listeners that can really help them um, enhance their own uh, journey as a leader when it comes to leveraging diversity as an asset to create more equity, inclusion and engagement? What do you recommend? Um, any other advice tips for them? I would say something that I've uh, really engaged with in terms of my thinking lately is, you know, a lot of DEIB improvements take time. Um, and I absolutely understand and believe that. But I also understand how it feels to be in a minoritized identity or a combination or at the intersection of several and to be fed up with this idea of we just need more time because these issues have festered for decades and, and probably centuries, right? Um, and so I, that, that takes me back to a conversation. It was a, a really big flashpoint, this uh, racist incident that occurred at an institution. And we had a big open forum about it. And at the end, once we got to Q and I was facilitating, co-facilitating with a colleague uh, at the request of the president. When we got to the end, the person, someone was just kind of uh, was talking. In fact, it was an alum who said, you know, I was here 20 years ago. And you're telling us it takes time. But I had these same issues 20 years ago and you told us then give us some time. And so when is when is it going to be time? And then another person, uh, and it was actually a student, well-meaning student who said, you know, well, it's kind of like the difference between microwave food and slow home cooked, you know, really organic food. You know, microwave food can hit the spot, you know, right away, but it's not as as nurturing and nutritious and and, and just probably as good, you know, as good tasting as food that you would cook in the oven and, and really spend a lot of time cutting up fresh vegetables or putting it in a crock pot and really taking that time. And another person said, you know, I understand that and I, and I do agree with you, but if I'm, if we're using that analogy, if I'm at the point of starvation, then I can't wait 12 hours or 24 hours for you to marinate that and then put it in a slow cooker and all of that. I need something right now. And so that challenged me to think about opportunities to really respond in the moment to things that we can address right away. Maybe it takes a little bit of effort, but we don't need as much time as we're saying that we need for that. You know, maybe I can address that right away yeah. or I need to discern that this is something that, yes, it needs addressing, but it is going to take time. But everything doesn't deserve that answer. And so a part of what I've you know, done as a, a diversity leader is to find out what are those things that we need to 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 microwave right away. We need this to happen, even if it's a temporary fix, and we're going to take time on the more sustainable solution. Um, really, kind of uh, doing a survey of that, and then making sure that even if we put a temporary solution in place, that we do have the long term plan to address the systemic issue and actually impact sustainable change. And so that's just something that I I, I share because it was meaningful to me. It has been meaningful to the work that I've done, and I think people appreciate you know, a, a little bit of balance of, yeah, yeah. it's going to take time, but yeah, we need to address some things kind of right away. Thank you for sharing that. It reminds me of a colleague of mine who just uh, released a book, uh, The 12 Things We Learned as Kindergartners That We Need to Unlearn as Adults. Mm -hmm. One of his favorite sayings that we learned as kids was, 
change takes time, right? Mm -hmm. Change doesn't take time. People do. Yeah. <laughs> change doesn't yeah. take time. People do. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We appreciate Absolutely. that. Maurice, thank you so much. Uh, I don't yes. know how the hour, you know, passed by fast, but this was a very That's engaging it. and riveting uh, conversation. It's a great Absolutely. way to kick off the 2023, my friend, and uh, appreciate yes. everything that you're doing. And congratulations. Um, I know that you've already been there for about a half, you know, five months or so. Yeah. And wishing you all the best and much continued success um, over at Sacred Heart. Much appreciated. Nice to meet you, Maurice. Really nice appreciate to meet you the as conversation. Well. Absolutely. Thank you, Logan. I appreciate uh, your support and participation as well. And a shout out again to our sponsors, ACT, Alliant Energy, and Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. The show is produced by LAS Media Group. A special thanks to our listeners, as without you, we wouldn't be here. So please continue to help us grow subscriber base by sharing our show with others, liking, commenting, etc. Love this episode of Diversity Straight Up? Then head over to the most popular podcast and audio platforms to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. And as we say on our show, Diversity Straight Up. Keeping it real.